0: We pursue the poor and include them in our church, and we have we try, anyway, to have joyful worship and sound biblical teaching, and believe it or not, we are a PCA church, and uh, any of you are welcome. Anytime you're in Chattanooga, come on by. We're in two different places in the city, uh, up on Memorial Hospital and over in East Lake, uh, but you would be welcome uh, to come and visit us. We'd love to have you. Since I stepped down, I have become the coordinator of Urban and Mercy Ministries for the PCA under an organization called Mission to North America. And so my job is to go around the country and to train churches and how to do mercy and how to reach the poor and uh, sometimes how to uh, learn cross-cultural skills. I'm also the coordinator of a thing called the New City Network, and we are about 70 congregations in 65 cities in five countries uh, trying to be that kind of church. And so I just ask you to pray for us, if you will remember us, pray that uh, the Lord would help. My wife's not here today, I'd love for you to meet her. Her name is Joan, and we work as a team uh, going from place to place. Uh, By the way, this is just an advertisement. On the table, uh, there is a sign-up sheet. And if you would like to get our newsletter, you could put your email there, and we will deluge you with propaganda about all that we do. Uh, But I do really, seriously, ask for your prayers uh, that God would help us, uh, because I believe that what Jesus said was true. Thank you. Very appropriate moment, okay? When he said that the fields are white on the harvest, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus said that he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. And there is a great harvest to be won among poor people. They are waiting for hope. They're waiting for good news. And uh, we've got it. And uh, so I really firmly believe God doesn't want us just to huddle together in our sort of middle class enclaves and hold great theology to ourselves, but he wants us to share the good news, especially with those whose lives are being beaten up by all kinds of things. Again, an appropriate moment. Amen. Now, if you have your Bible, uh, if you would open with me to uh, the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6. And uh, if you don't know your Bible, you could sort of turn to uh, Matthew and then turn back a few pages. Uh, It's near the end of the Old Testament, right after the book of Jonah, Micah chapter 6. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read beginning at verse 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this season of the year. Lord, as we come to the end of winter, we come to the end of Lent, we come to Holy Week, we think, Lord, about all these events that took place so long ago, on which our eternity depends, that you, Lord Jesus, were betrayed and turned over to sinful and wicked men, and you were nailed to a cross, but on that cross you bore our sins. How we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world. How we thank you that you love us. And now, Lord, we want to pray for your Holy Spirit to come. I ask you for your anointing to help use this uh, inept and sinful man uh, to preach your holy word. Lord, you have an agenda for each one of us. And I pray that you would work out that agenda today, that we would receive your word by faith. And that, Holy Spirit, You would give us the grace to be able to obey it. We ask it for Your glory, and in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves, a year old. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require? to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mm -mm. I want to talk about the bad about good. The bad about good. Uh, You notice uh, that it tells us in our text, He showed you, O man, what is good. But there, there are several issues that are going on in this text about badness and goodness. Uh, the, the prophet uh, comes to God here. He, he's sort of having a talk with God and with himself and with us. And, he, and he's re- reflecting on, on something that is a, a problem. And first, there's the moral problem. And the moral problem is he's a sinner. And he doesn't know what to do about his sin. He wants to come before God, but he acknowledges that God is exalted, which means he's above everything. He's he's the Lord of everything. And not only is he in charge, but he's holy. And, And that presents a problem. It's one thing to be afraid of somebody who's big and strong and powerful, but it's also uh, intimidating to be in front of somebody who's never done anything wrong. And you and I have never stood on earth in front of anybody like that. Oh, you know, we have, we've sometimes been around people that we thought were better than us morally or uh, sort of had a religious aura around them. But we're talking about the holy God. And how do you come before such a being the way you are? Now, now, let's take a moment and discuss the way you are. The, the Bible says there is no one who does not sin. Another appropriate moment. Any, any witnesses here? Any sinners in the house? Yeah. And I will tell you, uh, this is not just an intellectual problem. This, this is a deeply disturbing problem. It, it's probably more disturbing after a night out. It's probably more disturbing after a one-night stand. It's more disturbing after a session of pornography and sexual fantasy. It's, it's more disturbing after cheating on a test. It's, it's more disturbing uh, after stealing or lying. Uh, it's more disturbing after realizing that you really are f- consumed with hate and bitterness. And you're ashamed. I hope you're ashamed. You know, one of the great problems of our society is we're, we're really almost a shameless society. You can do anything you daggone want to. And not only that nobody cares, you don't care. Your conscience gets seared. It gets hard. You get used to sinning. And this is one moment in this prophet's life where it all, the, all, you know, all the hens come home to roost. All, all the sins finally impact him. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you really feel whipped with your own immorality. You feel beaten by your sinfulness. And that's where he's at. And and yet, he wants a relationship with God. We live in a culture that declares and proclaims all the time, you can have a relationship with God, and you can be spiritual and live any way you want to. And that is a great deception. Deception. The Bible says this, be holy because I'm holy. That's what God says. And that's a scary moment. It's a scary moment to be as sinful and wicked as you are and as I am and have that moment when we say, God, I don't know what to say. It's like that Isaiah 6 moment where, you know, I don't know if you know that text where Isaiah said, I I saw the Lord. And I said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He, you know, he's, he's right before God, and these, these angels with six wings are flying around God, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And all Isaiah can do is say, don't kill me. And I, I don't know about you, I'm old enough now to have sinned a lot. And I'm old enough uh, to say to God, thank you, God, you didn't kill me when I did that, when I was like that. That's, uh, that's a morality problem. How do you deal with a holy God when you aren't holy? And that's the problem of the prophet right here. With what shall I come before the Lord? What, what do I offer for my transgression?" For the sin of my soul. Well, now we have a theological problem. And notice how he, he thinks it out. Okay, with what shall I come before the Lord? Okay, I've got, you're holy, I'm sinner, how do I pay you off? You know, I, have you ever been caught by a cop speeding or running a stop sign or a red light? Probably none of you. But maybe, just imagine that moment where you're trying to think, how do I get out of this? You know, what do I offer to the policeman? Oh, maybe that's not a good idea. You know, uh, okay, I'm going to get a ticket. What do I offer to the judge? What, 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 how do I pay for this? And the prophet says, you know, he he gives some extraordinary ideas. He says, shall I come before him with a calf, a year old? Now, understand this. Uh, This is written several thousand years ago and this was during the uh, years of Israel, and they had temple worship. And the temple worship was built on the whole idea of sacrifice. You would bring an animal, and uh, that animal would die for your sins. And they would sprinkle the blood of that animal on the altar, and, and uh, hopefully that sacrifice would appease Almighty God. Now, we know from the theology of the bible that uh, the blood of bulls and goats never take away sin we know that that was really a sign to the lamb of god who was going to come that is jesus but here the prophet is saying well, how do i do this how do i pay off god for being so bad some of us today even i will say even some of us christians when we actually have a moment where we we know we fell we know we blew it we know we have failed god and we feel dirty, we feel nasty, we immediately say, okay, I'm going to make this up. I'm going to do better. So instead of bringing calves or animals, we try good works. We try a little more effort. We try, you know, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And we, we try to dust ourselves off with uh, intentionality and, 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 and with uh, a commitment to try to improve. How's that work for you? It doesn't work. We don't erase our sins with our determination to be better people. He said, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Thousands! With 10,000 rivers of oil. I mean, this guy must have been pretty bad. Oh, man, then he jumps, I I mean, he jumps to a place it's hard to imagine. Look at this, what he says. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can I have a show of hands? How many of you are the firstborn child of your family? Would you raise your hand? You're dead. You're the payment for your parents' sin. You're dead. Thank God I'm a middle child. (laughs) you say, wait a minute, this is ridiculous, this is terrible. Now, Now, he is having an honest conversation because in that culture, by the way, there were religions, not the religion of Israel, but there were pagan religions that actually taught that the way you appease the gods is you take your firstborn child and you burn them alive in a fire. And that's one reason God hated idolatry and tried to protect the people of Israel from it. Because he said, I never asked you for such a thing. That is not the kind of God we serve or worship. And here here I want you to understand this. Your firstborn child cannot pay for the sin of your soul. He's only going to have to pay for the sin of his soul. Each one of us. No man can pay for the sins of another. That's the theological problem. Now, let's read on a little bit. He showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And you go, oh, thank God. Oh, I'm so glad. I don't have to kill anybody. I don't have to kill any animals. I don't have to buy any Crisco or I can just do good. So we've had the moral problem. I'm a sinner. I don't know what to do, but we have a theological problem. How do I pay God off? Now we have an existential problem. Do you see it here? Because as you read this, you may feel relieved. Oh, man, this is such a positive statement to act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If I could just do that, you see the problem? You can't. That's the existential problem. If you say, okay, God says he's told me to do what is good, and 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 I'm so glad it's not like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are so negative. They keep having this word not in it. Thou shalt not. Isn't it nice to have a command that's so positive? Well, my friends, don't you understand that the first and great commandment, though expressed positively... Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. They are essentially the same thing. The Ten Commandments that are full of thou shalt nots are really the pattern of love for how we are to treat one another. And all of those positive things about loving God with all we've got and loving our neighbor as ourselves, uh, they're equally damning. Why? Why? Because we can't do it. That's the existential problem in my existence, in my life. How do I be good? And this is good stuff, all right? To act justly, to stand for justice. Is there any injustice in the world? Oh, come on, folks. Surely you know the answer to that one. Is there any injustice in the world? Yeah. Is there any injustice in Rome, Georgia? Yeah. Is there any need for mercy in Rome, Georgia? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was looking at the statistics uh, uh, that we were sharing this weekend in the seminars about mercy and justice. And one of them was that I think your rate of poverty is twice that of the rest of the state. Double that of the state, about 30% versus 15% there are some big mercy issues here. And we, you know, every day on the news and in our papers and on, over the internet, there are issues of injustice. You know, justice is basically, is there equity? Uh, Whenever you face a justice issue, you know, it really comes down to, would I like to be treated that way? Because, you know, we ought to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. Is that not right? And when that's violated, when when we realize this person has, they are being mistreated, maybe uh, because of the color of their skin, maybe because of their gender, maybe because of their age, maybe because of their disability, maybe because of their lack of education, maybe because uh, even the way they spell their last name, I don't know. But if they are being treated as if they are not made in the image of God, if they are being treated as if they should not have equal rights with everybody else, that's injustice. And there's too much of it in the world. And because there's so much injustice, there's a great need for mercy. And here's one of the great dilemmas. You can do all the mercy you want, but if you don't solve the justice issues, you're going to have to keep doing mercy. Now, there are issues of mercy beyond justice. Things that, that happen to people that are nobody else's fault, they just happen. And people need mercy. But how are you doing at that? I mean, are you a champion of justice? Have you ever stood along somebody who was mistreated? Have you ever risked your life to protect their rights? Have you ever stood for the truth when it wasn't popular to do so? And have you ever served the hungry and the naked and the homeless and those in prison and those who are sick? I mean, what has it ever cost you to really show mercy? And how about the humility part? How are you doing at that? So we think, oh, yeah, this is the good part of the text. But it's an existential problem. And here I want to say this. Right here, before we even get to that last phrase, he showed you, oh, man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, we need the theology of the New Testament. Right here, we want to sort of put a break on it and say, thank God. The New Testament was written. And what am I talking about? If you've got a a Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Some of you know this by heart, and if you don't know it by heart, you should memorize it. Because it is really our birthright as Christians. Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. See, that not from doing verse 8. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's true humility. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Hallelujah! This passage is saying some really awesome things. It, It solves the moral problem. It solves the theological problem. And it also solves the existential problem. How does it solve the moral problem? Grace is that mercy, that power from God, freely given, that is expressed in the coming of His own Son, Jesus Christ. God didn't ask you to give your firstborn. He gave His firstborn. That's grace. God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's like his cousin, John the Baptist, said about him, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was Christ uh, who was that Lamb. We don't need calves. We don't need rams. We don't need rivers of oil. God already gave the sacrifice. Instead of you, instead of holding you, Fully accountable for every stupid and wicked and rotten thing you've ever done or the good you never did that you should have done. Jesus came and died for you. Nailed to the cross. Hung there. Bled and died. And in that moment of his death, the anger of God at our sin. Was satisfied. It is finished, Jesus said. Now, I'm amazed there's no shouting going on in this church. Some of you are going to have to get to heaven before you get liberated. That's the theology of the New Testament. There's more to it. There's more to it. Yes, Christ died, but how did you ever come to believe it? By grace. The Holy Spirit found you and opened your eyes to see it. And you said, Oh, it was for me he died. For me. And the moral problem is solved. The theological problem is solved. Well, what about the existential problem? Because it's still there. God says, Okay, your sin is paid for. Do good, act justly, love mercy. Walk humbly with me. And here is this wonderful, wonderful word of grace. Brothers and sisters, I haven't come by this morning to tell you that we need to be champions of justice. And we need to get down on our knees and wash the feet of the poor. And cleanse their wounds. And wrap their, uh, their sores. I'm, I'm not telling you that, you that you ought to spend your life in a leper colony. Or, 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 or figure out great ways we can finally bring employment to people who are declared unemployable. I mean, there's so many wonderful things we could do for mercy and justice. I am not telling you to do it in your own strength. Because if you're a, a justice junkie, and I've met some of them, you can be pretty self-righteous. And if you are just, think you're the Messiah, that you're going to solve all the needs of the poor through your acts of mercy, you can be in delusion. You can just be waiting to get burned out. How can we do this? This thing God asks us to do, this behavior that looks so much like the character and personality of Jesus, how can we do it? By grace. See, I've come here to tell you that it's possible to do good and to be good by the one who makes you good. Uh, Jesus can take care of your sin problem, but Jesus can also take care of your inability problem. Grace isn't just the message of the cross that saved you. Grace is the message of the power of God to enable you to live holy and to live beautiful. Because that's what I want you to understand holiness is. It's the beautiful life. When you are a man or a woman of justice, when you are a man or a woman who shows mercy, when you are a man or woman who is so broken by the reality of your own need for a Savior, you become a beautiful person. And you begin to change everything around you. People are affected by it. Some people may hate you for it. I'm not saying it's a it's a popular life. What I am telling you is grace makes it a possible life. When you depend on the work of the Holy Spirit to live this out, wonderful things happen. We all mess up. None of us are what we ought to be. But thank God, we're not what we used to be. And thank God we don't have to give up in despair and think we could never make a contribution. Because, you see, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's what our life ought to be. We don't just become Christians because we got a doctrine different than other people. We were saved by the grace of God to do good in the world, to turn the world upside down, that people might see Jesus in us and look at us and say, you know, I never expected anything good out of them. What happened? And for all eternity, the answer is going to be Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone here. I ask if there's anyone here, Lord God, who is not a believer in Christ today, still on the other side of that moral and theological dilemma, where they don't know how to pay for their sins. I ask you, Lord, to open their eyes to believe in you right now and come to Christ and be saved. And I pray for those of us, Lord, who try to do good in our own strength, give us the grace to repent of that and to cry out to you for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to do the good you want us to do. And we thank you, Lord, for grace today. Grace, marvelous grace, amazing grace that frees us from our sin and to help us live holy. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's receive the benediction. You can extend your hands. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen. Would you hug somebody's neck before you go?